Hello, and welcome to show number 2324 of Eyes on Success, a weekly program covering a wide variety of topics of interest to people with vision loss. I'm Nancy Goodman Torpy. And I'm Pete Torpy. Now, that is a sound that today's guest is very familiar with, a power saw. Not something I'm brave enough to use being blind myself, but today's guest is, despite the fact that he is blind. Dave Carlson was introduced to woodworking as a youth, watching and helping his dad in the shop. However, it wasn't until he lost his sight to retinitis pigmentosa in his 40s and was inspired to make a toy box for his new grandson that he took on this hobby in earnest. We'll talk with Dave about his experiences as a blind woodworker and how it is possible to make it all work successfully and safely. But first for our tip of the week. This week's tip comes from Dave Carlson. Well, my tip of the week is never be impatient. That's the best way to get into serious trouble in a shop where you have power tools. Just because you've hit the power switch on a saw or a planer or a router or a sander, that tool is still spinning. And it might get very quiet toward the end, but it ain't stopped until it's stopped. And you don't want to reach for whatever you've cut off until you know that blade is not turning anymore. You are listening to Eyes on Success. 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 Let's start by meeting Dave. My name is Dave Carlson. I live in Central Oregon, having retired several years ago. I am a blind woodworker now because I enjoy woodworking. I was an engineer for many, many years, which may have helped in what I do today. I am totally blind, as I said. I lost my eyesight due to retinitis pigmentosa. I lost my sight completely by the time I was 40 years old. So as a result, I did have some eyesight while growing up and learning a lot of woodworking from my father to begin with, and then on my own later on. Speaking about your father, I understand RP runs in your family. Your dad had RP, as does your brother, Mark, whom we talked to a while back on the show. So you're kind of used to this in some sense, I guess, huh? Uh, Yes, I am. Uh, Fortunately, with RP in my case, as, as with my aforementioned brother, it went gradually. So we were both able to prepare for it. My career choices were dictated by my loss of sight and my lack of good hearing skills. Um, I went through several uh, interests in college before I finally settled down in engineering, some of which, like photography, just weren't very practical. (laughs) So I got smart and finally decided to become an engineer like my dad. And as growing up, with eyesight, my dad had what's called a shopsmith in the basement in our home, and I helped him out. As young as probably eight years old, I was starting to use the shopsmith and cutting wood and sanding things and having just a good time playing with wood. 
Wow. So your blindness was not an impediment at all to your profession and your woodworking and the things you like to do. That's great. Yep. Yeah, that's true. Um, and as I say, being able to be prepared for the inevitable allowed me to to make some reasonable decisions. Eyes on Success is made possible in part by our corporate partners. Underwriting pairs the impact of targeted marketing with the integrity of community goodwill. Learn more by sending an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net. This week's focus topic is woodworking, how it's possible to do it successfully and safely, even if blind. Anyway, Dave, today we wanted to talk mostly about your woodworking and you kind of mentioned in the introduction that your first introduction to that was in the basement with some of your dad's equipment. Yeah, that's right. Um, my dad had what's called a shop myth, which is a multi-purpose tool. Uh, it, it's a great tool for doing uh, several woodworking tasks, such as sawing, sanding, uh, turning on a lathe, drill press, and a couple other features in a very small space, since the tool could be set up for different operations. Learned on that. I eventually inherited it after Dad passed away. Kept it in our garage. During the time I was uh, in my 40s, I did very little woodworking with it, except when I was able to beg my wife to back the car out of the garage, cover everything with sheets to keep the dust off of everything in the garage, then get the shop myth out, start making some wood stuff. After two hours, shut it down take down all the sheets, sweep up everything so she could put the car back in the garage. So having a device that was easy to set up, when you put all that wrapper around it, it was still a big deal to get going. Yeah, yeah, unfortunately. In the case of trying to keep the garage as clean as possible, it, it took a lot of setup time to protect against all the dust that's inevitably going to blow around when you when you cut wood. So it sounds like there was a long time between your first use of some of these tools until you started using it more frequently as an adult. When did you first use this device as a kid? Well, as I said, I was about eight years old, I think, when I uh, first started using it. Dad would uh, encourage me to cut a piece of wood or sand off something like that. So, And of course, he was supervising while I was doing it because I was just a kid, even though I was fully sighted. Is naturally dangerous. Any any power tool is it can be pretty dangerous if you're not careful. We've known a number of woodworkers over the years who do it as a hobby, and not all of them have all of their fingers. Well, I still have all eight fingers and two thumbs. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I would guess that being blind, you're naturally more cautious. You know, a lot of sighted people are like, "Well, I know where everything's going to be," and maybe they don't. That's true. Uh, I have a sense, again, the advantage of having once been able to see these things in motion, I have a sense of where the sharp, dangerous parts are and do my best to avoid them. But it's not to say that I haven't nicked my finger occasionally. So I keep several Band-Aids in the shop. Now, you said you started doing woodworking in your 40s. Did you have some sight still at that time? No, by the time I was 40, I was I pretty well totally blind due to the retinitis pigmentosa. What spurred me on then was I had a grandson, brand new grandson, and 
my son said, see, Dad, it'd be neat if you could make him a toy box. So I thought, okay, this is a fairly major project since it doesn't involve building a deck or making a fence, something like that. At the same time, I got turned on to a group called Woodworking for the Blind. They have a website and they have thousands of articles that have been read by a man named Larry Martin, who ran the operation for the benefit of blind woodworkers, since we can't actually easily read the articles and certainly can't see the pictures that are a part of these articles. He not only read the articles, but he described the pictures and the drawings. And these were uh, mainstream uh, magazines, uh, American Woodworker, Fine Woodworking, etc. So that was a great resource, and it turned me on to woodworking at that point. When you said these articles were read by Larry Martin, you actually meant he read them. He didn't write them. He he just converted them into a format that you could gain the knowledge from. That's correct. I mean, he was the dedicated man, I can't think of any other word for it, who would read these articles and record them for us. And we have a database where any of us can look up an article about anything that might pertain to woodworking and find two or three audio files of him reading about it. Wow, what a terrific gift he provides. Yeah, yeah, I'm very grateful for it, as well as many of the other members. So, since it had been so long since you had used some of these tools back when you had sight, you must have approached this with at least some trepidation when you were in your 40s. Yeah, absolutely. I was, um, you know, familiar enough with the tool that I was using. Again, this was my father's old shop mill. I could literally operate it with my eyes closed. So um, it wasn't a big deal. What comes into play as being cautious now is later in life, after retiring, moving up here, I first bought my own shop myth, since I gave my father's shop myth to my son. And since then, I purchased several other power tools for the shop, each of which has its own little dangers and uh, nuances. So what is the secret to running some of these tools? Well, first thing first, before you plug it in or turn on the switch, feel all over the place. Learn where where the sharp edges are. Know how they're going to operate. And just remember not to put my fingers anywhere near the sharp edges. Well, I guess certainly having a familiarity with the equipment is certainly an important aspect here. Now, how about when it comes to... Even things like measurement. I mean, this isn't dangerous, but you need to make accurate measurements when you're putting pieces together. Yes. Uh, fortunately, technology has, has kept up. There are four or five tools that I use on a regular basis uh, that are geared to helping out. Simple level, for example, for checking the level of something you're building. They have audible levels now that will be. In fact, even our iPhones will do that. Uh, there are two special tools made by a company called Wixie, W-I-X-E-Y. One of them is called an angle cube, and the other is called a digital protractor. Both of these devices work with Bluetooth and connect to the iPhone. So I can check the angle of tilt on my saw blade to make sure it's a perfect 90 degrees or set it for an angle if I need to make an angle cut. The protractor does the same thing, only does it for adjusting the miter. One of the tools I use most often is called a click rule. The click rule is like a little rod inside of a housing that every sixteenth of an inch 
you get a little click with a ball detent that locks it in place. So you can set by counting the clicks and feeling a couple lines on the top of the rod to any distance between six to 12 inches. You can use that for exact measurements, or you can use that to transfer measurements from one place to another. Now, often when I see Nancy working in the shop, she'll often take a pencil to measure something and make a mark with a pencil on the wood, and then she'll know where to cut. How do you translate that into not seeing? You can't put a mark on a piece of wood very easily. Yeah, if I need to mark a piece of wood, I'll use either a knife blade or an awl to scratch a line, a groove that I could use to cut along. But truthfully, most of my cutoff measurement for cutting is done right on the tool itself. For example, on a table saw, when I lay the wood down and prepare for cutting, I will measure physically the distance along the piece of wood to the edge of the saw blade so I know exactly what I'm going to be cutting. And then just run it through the blade and check my work afterwards. And I can get into within uh, easily within half of a sixteenth of an inch, which is pretty good for most woodworking. How about the design process? I mean, a lot of people will draw something up with measurements on a piece of paper. Do you have a corresponding way of doing that in Braille or some kind of pad with raised line drawings or something? Actually, no. I I do it all in my head. If I've got an idea from something I have felt before, I will think about it for a few days and work it out in my head try to think of it from all angles until I've got the idea and then start cutting wood and test fit it before I start putting any glue on it. But generally, it, it just, uh, it's a mental process. I think the engineering helps a lot on that. I was going to say, you sound like a very organized person, and that has to be very helpful in both keeping safe and actually completing these projects successfully. Yeah, and you say organized. It's another important aspect of my shop is I know where all my tools are. I have a friend that comes over once in a while, and and I've trained him very well to put everything back exactly where he took it from so I can find it later. Does that work in your refrigerator as well? (laughs) In my refrigerator? Yeah, we've had lots of blind people complaining that the rest of their family never puts things back where they belong in the refrigerator. (laughs) Well. Unfortunately, my my sphere of influence does not go that far. (laughs) So I'm curious, you talked about, um, you know, building this toy chest and some of the other things you've built, but a number of your projects have been, um, I would say they have cylindrical symmetry, so like bowls and vases and and things that you would have to make on a lathe. Mm -hmm. How do you manage to transfer your concept into a shape on a lathe? Are you like constantly stopping and feeling? Do you have a template? How does that work? Yeah, I don't I don't work with templates, but you're right about the stopping and feeling. Once a piece of wood has been turned, and when I say turning, I'm you know, spinning it on a lathe. Once it's been turned down so that all the rough edges are off and it starts to become smooth, it's easy enough to feel the shape even while the wood is spinning. Because you just lightly rest your fingers along the surface, outside or inside, and you kind of feel it. But I usually try to stop it and get a good check and measurement on how I'm doing. One of the toughest parts of making a bowl is not cutting it too deep on the inside. Um, And I turn a bowl, I always do the bottom and outside first. And then I mount it onto a, a chuck 
from the bottom and I start hollowing out the inside. And it's easy enough to hollow it out and get the wall thicknesses to be fairly uniform if they're going down. But the tricky part is knowing just how far down to go on the inside before I pop through the bottom. Yeah, popping through the bottom seems um, undesirable. It becomes a funnel, not a bowl. <laughs> I've made a few funnels in my time. <laughs> <laughs> well, that has to be particularly hard because, as you say, you can't stick your fingers down the bottom to see how far you've gone. Otherwise, you might run into the saw. Well, yeah, in, in, in effect, the, um, there are some tools or calipers you can use to try to get a rough idea at how thick the bottom is by measuring from the backside where the chuck is mounted and then on the inside where you're, you're cutting away. But unless I leave a lot of extra, it's tricky. When you buy a new piece of equipment, do you look for how the controls are laid out and anything about the equipment that may be special for you in terms of buying it that might help you work it easier? That's a good question. Uh, most shop equipment is pretty simple. There, there's obviously, a, there's an on and off switch, and they're almost always mechanical, not digital, not touchscreen. The adjustments are usually done by turning a crank or loosening something and and sliding something over. So we're fortunate in that respect that there's not a lot of you know tactile screens to worry about on the equipment itself. Tell us about some of the more interesting pieces that you've made that you've particularly enjoyed making. One of my earliest pieces, and I've never made another one, is the one-off. It was a bagel slicer that was shaped like a heart. So uh, you look at it from the side, you see a heart with a, with a hole in the center. And it was wide enough to drop a bagel in there. And then there was a slot that you could run a knife down and, and slice the bagel in half. I can say that that it's probably one of the least used things we have in the house at this point. But it was fun to make. Well, it certainly sounds cool. Yeah. The other things I make are cutting boards and uh, charcuteries, uh, serving trays. Um, I took a piece of uh, cherry and sanded it down very thin and made it round and put a handle on it and ended up making myself a a big spatula for taking a pizza out of the oven. Wow. And you don't mind actually using these things? They could get damaged. I don't mind. I guess I could always make another one. Spoken like a true woodworker, right? <laughs> you know, if you damage one, it's an excuse for another project. Right. And of course, every project doesn't necessarily turn out the way it was originally intended. Wood is very forgiving, but wood... Uh, is something that, uh, what's the phrase? You can always cut shorter. You can never cut longer. Which brings up an interesting point. My actual preferred medium is fabric. And if you're off by a little bit, you know, the fabric is soft and you can kind of ease the one piece and just fake it and just kind of use up the extra fabric a little bit at a time. But wood doesn't do that. I mean, my concept of wood is you have to be pretty precise. Yeah, and I and I tend to be extremely uh, precise in my woodwork, and much more than other people I've heard. If it turns out wrong, if I'm making a four-sided box and it turns out that one side is just a shade too small, 
well, then I'm going to get the saw out and cut the other three pieces to make them the same smallness so everything goes together really nice. And who's going to know about that? Only me. Well, and everybody listening to this show. Well, that's true. Back in junior high school, they made all the boys take shop. And I had some amount of vision back then, and I did shop, and I made this little lamp base, and it was supposed to be square, and it wasn't quite square, so I started shaving down the one side, and, well, I shaved down too much. Then I started shaving down the opposite sides, and that came too much, and (laughs) this lamp bottom had a very odd shape by the time I was through. (laughs) Yeah, uh one trick in woodworking, if you're going to make something with legs on it, it's always better to make it with three legs instead of four. Three legs will never rock or wobble. That is the most stable configuration. Is there any piece you can think of that gave you a particular amount of trouble or was particularly challenging? Uh, I made a very large, uh, about a 40-inch diameter wood tabletop for an outdoor table we had had a glass top originally and my wife said oh i'd love to have a wooden one for that project i took five different types of wood and cut them into various width long strips and after she decided which order they were going to be in since she had the visual aspect uh i said about having to glue them all together and uh, i had to glue them into three major sections in order to accommodate the width of the tools that I had to finish it. And after gluing up each section, I ran them through the uh, what's called a surface planer to get them even thickness. And then I had to glue those three sections together and again, try to get the thickness down by sanding. And then I had to mount it up and cut it into a huge circle on my router table. And then I made a thin walnut strip to go around the outside of the circles like a, uh, a metal rim on a wagon wheel and screw that on. Uh, that was one of the bigger projects I made. And my wife loves it because, she, of course, she was part of the design. And she really appreciates it. That must be kind of cool to have your creations all around the house and know that you made them and are enjoying them. Yeah. Most of my projects are in the house. They're outside the house. And... Uh, <laughs> Sometimes I wonder, I've got to start selling this stuff. (laughs) I was going to ask about that, if you sold any of your work or you just use them for yourself and give them away as presents. I have given some away, um, but fortunately um, for my pocketbook, I have managed to sell a few uh, items, just word of mouth at this point, which means that I get money and I can go buy more wood. It's great to be able to fund your hobbies and the things you enjoy, even if you can afford it. You feel good if you bring in a little bit of money to support the hobby. Yep. So were there any other tools or techniques or anything that you wanted to talk about? I have a list of tools that that are basic tools. You know, going into woodworking doesn't mean you have to go out and start buying power tools and expensive equipment. You can start woodworking pretty easily with just a simple planer, block sander, uh, a T-square, um, and then, of course, screwdrivers, etc. And then as far as supplies, you can get away with things with just uh, double-sided tape, masking tape, a good kind of wood glue, um, screws and nails. I started that way many, many years ago, and uh, 
it's very satisfying in a way sometimes to get out that hand tool and finish something that you you started. Even if you started it on a machine, at least a lot of uh, there's a lot of finishing work that goes on using hand tools. So I guess what you're saying is people don't have to jump into using these potentially dangerous power tools right away. They can start easy with some safe, simple, relatively inexpensive tools and work their way up as they become more interested in the hobby. Yes. And as I alluded, there was a, I mentioned a tool earlier tonight with the, uh, the shop myth, which is a very nice starter tool for anybody who might have limited space. And uh, you basically get about uh, five or six different shop tools in one machine just by moving the setup to a different configuration. They're not terribly cheap, but they're certainly less expensive than each of those tools individually. And if anybody wants to see some of the projects that Dave has made using some of the tools and techniques that he described during this show, the photograph that we will be posting with the audio for this episode includes several projects that Dave has made. And if you can't see them, I assure you they are beautiful. Thank you. You are listening to Eyes on Success. Success, 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 success. Now for this week's final item, how to learn more about woodworking and how to contact Dave Carlson. Well, Dave, if people are interested in getting into woodworking, you mentioned several resources. Are they still available? Yes, um, they are. Woodworking for the Blind is definitely up and running and uh, still an active site. In fact, they use a typical um, email list server. So we have a lot of uh, conversation on an ongoing basis. It's very easy to subscribe to that list. And what's the website for that? www4b.org. And that listserv is available through that website? That's correct. You can sign up right there. Are there any other major resources you would recommend, or should people just find it all at www4b.org? That is the best resource that I can recommend, other than uh, the tools that I mentioned. They have their own websites, and I think you can post them with with the show notes. And if people had a question for you, how would they reach you? Well, I have an email. It's um, carlsonwoodwork52 at gmail.com. And I'll spell that C-A-R-L-S-O-N-W-O-O-D-W-O-R-K-S-5-2 at gmail.com. Or they can call me. I have a cell phone and I'm happy to talk. Uh, I'm at area code 408-858-9437. And you can find all of that information in the show notes associated with this episode, which is number 2324 at www.eyesonsuccess.net. You'll also find a link there to Wixie Tools, as well as to a previous episode in which we talked about woodworking being blind. That's it for today's show. Next week on Eyes on Success, we'll be talking about Innovative Impact LLC. You may know of Kirk Adams as the past president of the American Foundation for the Blind. 
He also recently wrote his Ph.D. dissertation about inclusivity of people with disabilities in the workforce. Now he is the managing director of Innovative Impact LLC, a venture he started whose mission is to consult with companies to accelerate inclusion for people who are blind in their workforce. We'll talk with Kirk about his background and how he now matches blind job seekers with companies eager to hire them. Thanks for joining us this week, and we hope to catch you next week again. You've been listening to Eyes on Success, hosted and produced by Nancy Goodman Torpy and Peter Torpy. You can access the full archive of previous shows, subscribe to the podcast, and much more by going to our website, www.eyesonsuccess.net. If you have questions about anything you've heard on the show or have suggestions for future shows, send an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net. Thank you for listening and have a nice day.